What's up, boxing fans? Welcome to episode number 122 of The Neutral Corner. I am Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly Magazine and BoxingMonthly.com. Real quick, want to give a quick shout out to Ken Jung and Jay Gormley for updating their pledges on the MOB uh, Patreon account. These guys have been uh, pledges to MOB channel for a while and they just recently upped their pledges. So I wanted to thank them personally and all of our Patreon supporters. If you guys haven't gone there and checked us out yet, patreon.com slash Montero Unboxing. And of course, I'll remind everyone to go to the Apple Podcast, find Montero Unboxing, find the Neutral Corner, follow us, give us a rating, a like, review, all that good stuff. Let's get right into it with news and notes. Before I get started with uh, with the boxing news, I just want to let you guys know something. Um, I don't have all the details yet, but Thompson Boxing is putting on a card this Friday from Ontario, California, and yours truly is going to be calling the fights, calling the action live along with Beto Duran. Those of you who watch those cards usually see Steve Kim do the color commentary with Beto Duran, who does the blow-by-blow. But Steve is going to be in New York this weekend for the Lomachenko fight, for Linares Lomachenko. So uh, they have me covering for him. So uh, when I get more details, you know, I'll let you guys know throughout the week on Twitter, Facebook, and I, I might even post something on YouTube letting you guys know. But that's going to be this Friday night from here in Southern California. I'm going to be calling the fights along with Beto Duran. I'm crazy excited. Here's the problem. I already packed my damn suit. <laughs> You guys know I'm in the process of moving, so I already packed my suit. So now I, I'm scrambling to find a place where I could rent a suit. So uh, I'm gonna check, uh, I think, Men's Warehouse. Hopefully they have something in my size. Obviously I'm not gonna be able to get anything tailored this week, you know, on such short notice. But, um, you know, hopefully they have a jacket that somewhat fits me and I don't look like a complete clown Friday night. But uh, yeah, excited for that, man. I'll let you guys know more details as they come throughout the week. Also, next week on The Neutral Corner, uh, we're going to do a two-week special because it's actually going to be the last episode of TNC that I'm filming here in Los Angeles before we go out on our cross-country drive, Tiff and I, right? So I'm going to film it up on the roof. So next Monday when we shoot, it, it might be Sunday night, Monday morning, I'm not sure yet. It'll be Montero on rooftops, The Neutral Corner from the roof of the crib here in Koreatown, Los Angeles. And Tiffany Lamb is gonna do a segment with me. Uh, and my brother Anthony should be doing a segment with me as well. So if you guys had any questions for Tiff, I know I recently posted a video on the channel asking for questions for another Ask Me Anything segment for myself. But if you guys have any questions specifically for Tiff, you wanna know anything, anything is game, all right? Um, drop them in the comment section for this episode of TNC and she'll address them on next week's episode of TNC from the roof. And it's going to be fun, man. The roof is going to be on fire. We're going to have some drinks up there. We're going to be chilling, just hanging out. And of course, we'll be covering two weeks worth of action. So it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Now, boxing news and notes. Keith, one-time Thurman. Keith, he drops his WBC title. And now Danny Garcia and Sean Porter are going to fight for the vacant WBC title. So basically, uh, Al Heyman and the BC, all parties involved, have had a hard-on for Thurman rematches with Garcia and Porter. I personally don't need to see it. I think Thurman clearly beat both of them. I know the fights were competitive. 
I know some of you out there really, really feel that Garcia beat Thurman or that Porter beat Thurman. Well, they didn't. Thurman won those fights. If, in all honesty, man, if Thurman was a more active fighter, we could have had both of those damn rematches by now. I don't need to see a rematch of both of them. However, if Garcia and Porter fight, and it looks like now they've been ordered to fight for the vacant WBC title, the winner of that fight, in my opinion, has earned a rematch with Keith Thurman. And honestly, at that point, they will have been more active than Thurman. And Thurman, you know, uh, I guess he'll be in line to fight for that title at that point, but he doesn't really deserve it. Is he going to want to tune up before he fights the winner of uh, Garcia Porter? I don't know yet, but at that point, I wouldn't mind seeing a rematch. But the fight we all want to see in that division right now is Thurman versus Spence. Now, I get it. Thurman can't jump right into that fight. He needs some sort of tune-up fight, and he wants to be paid for it. He's used to getting paid a certain amount of money that he got in those last two fights. So I understand. He, he, you know, the problem with the contracts with PBC and the way Thurman has been fighting the last few years, he gets one fight a year, but it's a significant payday for him. He wants to come back and have a tune-up fight. It's going to be a smaller payday. So that's going to be on him to accept that. Now, maybe he wants to come right back for a fight with the winner between Garcia and Porter. And maybe at that point, if he wins, if he beats them again, Maybe then he'll be ready for Errol Spence. I don't know. I'm hoping we get to see that fight in 2019. That's what I hope we'll see. Right now, man, Keith Thurman is just a non-factor. Mikey Garcia might sign with Dana White in his Zufa promotions. I guess Dana White wants to try to get into boxing because I'm sure that'll go well. And Mikey Garcia is rumored to possibly be talking to him, signing with him. It would be a major signing. It'd be a huge start for Zufa Promotions, obviously. However, I've talked about this, I feel like, for the last year, since Mikey Garcia has come back since his you know, long layoff from the sport. I just don't believe anything the guy says, and I don't know what his motives are, and I don't know what Zufa Promotions, Dana White, who, who has beefed with everybody in the sport already, you know, the number one lightweight in the world is going to be the winner between Linares Lomachenko this week, right? Well, Garcia already politically is not aligned to, to, fight, to face either of those guys because of his, his relationship with PBC. And then if he gets with Dana White, that's not going to help matters. So, so much to do about nothing. I really don't care what these guys make and who they, their wheelings and dealings. I just care about what they do in the ring. But I know a lot of people talked about that on Twitter. We'll see what happens. But right now, look, as far as Dana White and getting into boxing, we've seen a million and one people before try to just jump into boxing and think they're going to change the game. It is a sport that moves along very, very slowly in the top promoters in the sport, at least in this part of the world, in the USA. They've been doing it for a very, very long time. And there's a certain uh, protocol. There's a certain culture. And a guy like Dana White is not just going to jump in and change that shit overnight. It is a process. And if he's serious about this and he has a 20-year goal in mind with boxing, maybe he could do something. But I guess it's like when, you, when someone says they want to be an actor. One of the first things an acting coach will tell a kid when they say, I want to be an actor. I want to get into acting. I want to move out to L.A. And I'm going to give it three years and see what happens. People will laugh at you. It's not something you do in three years. It's something you do over 20 years. It is a 
a, a lifetime. It takes a very, very long time to build yourself up. It's the same thing in promotion and boxing. You're not just going to come in and change it overnight. So Garcia and White, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But for right now, eh, I've already spent too much time talking about it. Abdomaris signs a promotional agreement with Adidas Boxing. This is pretty cool, man. An American fighter signing with, uh, with a notable sports brand, sports uh, apparel brand. I think this is cool, and I'd like to see Adidas get more into boxing. I'd like to see all these big shoe companies, Nike and all these guys, get more into boxing. So good for Abner Mars, man. This, this comes ahead of his uh, rematch with uh, Leo Santa Cruz coming up next month. So good for him. I like this. This is a positive thing. I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, a card coming up in Oklahoma City, Gilberto Zerto Ramirez going up against the Colombian fighter, Romar Angulo, and also in the co-main, Alex Saucedo is fighting Lenny Zapavinga, who's actually an Australian fighter. That doesn't sound like a very Australian name, but he is an Australian fighter. They're fighting in Oklahoma City June 30th on ESPN at the Chesapeake Arena, uh, Chesapeake Energy Arena, where the, uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder of the NBA play. Saucedo was born in Mexico, but he lives in Oklahoma City. So him fighting there, I think this is a big deal. It's, it's smart for, for uh, Top Rank to do this. I would love to see Gilberto Ramirez step up the opposition, though. For Saucedo, who's really still a prospect, I don't really mind his opponent. But for Zerto Ramirez, man, you got to step up the opposition here. I don't know much about Romer Angulo, but I know he's definitely not an elite fighter at super middleweight. All right, guys, that's it for news and notes. Let's review what took place in the ring around the world last week. Last Wednesday, May 2nd, in Thailand, history was made, ladies and gentlemen. History was made. Shyafan Moonsri, or alias Wang Heng Manya Oten, defended his WBC minimum weight title once again and improved his record to... 50 and 0 with 18 knockouts. 50 and 0. The new TBE has arrived, ladies and gentlemen. I don't have any instruments to play. I don't have a jingle. Let me just pull out my air trumpet. I don't know what that was, but that was my song to celebrate the new TBE we have. He's from Thailand. I can't pronounce his name very good. I don't think any of you out there can. But this dude's 50 and 0. Obviously, I'm being facetious here. Look, undefeated records don't mean shit unless you fight the absolute best, right? And seeing a record like this of 50-0, you know, all those fans, those fanboys that think they know something about boxing because one of their favorite fighters, maybe the only fighter they know a damn thing about that they still talk about constantly, was undefeated. Well... So is Shayafun Moonsri, you morons. Friday, May 4th at Step Up Center, Golden Boy Promotions on ESPN. Justin Bieber improved to 15-0 with 13 knockouts. My, my, my bad, my bad. Ryan Garcia improved to 15-0 with 13 knockouts with a unanimous decision win over Jason Velez over 10 rounds. Now look, originally, Garcia was supposed to be on the Canelo-Golovkin rematch undercard, right? So... 
it was a major, major buzzkill for him, but also Golden Boy Promotions when that whole thing fell through for King Ride because obviously they're they're going all in. They're going balls deep with this kid, all right? They're shoving it in, no condom, nothing to the brim, promoting this dude as the next big thing, and that would have been the biggest stage possible. However, this was a pretty good consolation prize, and I actually think it was the better thing for Garcia than putting him on a Golovkin, uh, Canelo Golovkin uh, card up in Vegas with tens of thousands of screaming fans. He needs less of that shit. He needs more reality checks, which is which, which is what he got against Velez. So, real quick, Golden Boy Promotions kept talking, or actually it wasn't them. It, it was the ESPN crew, the, the commentating crew, uh, Friday night. They kept talking about the Instagram following and how this kid has 800,000 Instagram followers. They must, they must have mentioned that a dozen times. They talked about the, the sold-out crowd there at StubHub Center. It wasn't sold out. You guys saw some of the empty seats there. But the official number, the attendance was 6,625. Now, if that includes, let's, let's say it includes, I don't, I'm just throwing out a number there, guys. I don't know. Let's say it includes a couple thousand uh, you know, discounted tickets and maybe a couple hundred family and friend comps and stuff like that. This kid still packed 6,600 people into that arena on a Friday night right after rush hour in LA, which is a cluster F to get around in. Anyone who lives in the LA area knows that. Uh, for, for a fight against a guy who isn't you know, a, 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 an elite level opponent that people know. Boxing people know Jason Velez. But, uh, you know, Ryan Garcia, it's not like he was fighting a, a name guy. And it was on the eve of Cinco de Mayo. And I, it just so happened on Cinco de Mayo, there was a bigger event in the same arena. So all things considered, pretty good turnout. It, it, that is impressive. But I don't give a shit about the Instagram following, guys. I don't care if a bunch of girls like this kid. I get that the promoters like that, but I and you can mention that during the broadcast, but you don't have to mention it a dozen times. It, it you know it doesn't change the fact of how the kid can fight or not. Pump the brakes on that shit, and, and let's get focused on the actual action of what we're seeing in the ring and how this kid, who is a 19-year-old prospect, he turns 20 this year, is developing. That's what matters, and, and that's what Golden Boy Promotions needs to do their job here and pull this kid aside and really, really talk to him because, yes, of course, there's potential there, but it's not limitless potential. Potential always has a ceiling. You can market the hell out of this kid, but he's calling out Gervonta Davis, who was watching this fight and tweeted about it right after the fight. With a bunch of gr grammatical errors, because man, the guy can't formulate a sentence to save his life. But Gervonta Davis was right. The things he was tweeting, uh, it, it should be noted that Garcia and Velez missed weight the day before, right? And, and, and myself and many others ha have uh, blasted Gervonta Davis for, for losing his title on the scale. And Gervonta Davis tweeted about that and talked about it. I, I think I retweeted it because the misspelling was so horrible. Uh, it was just you know comical. But Davis was making a point. Here's the difference. Garcia missed weight by, I don't know, ounces. So did Velez. 
but they went and burned those ounces off and they made weight on the second attempt. So they did make weight for this fight. Also, these are prospects. These aren't guys defending a world title. Much, much different scenario. Davis missed weight and couldn't make weight on a second attempt. I don't even think he tried. He just gave up his title because he had a bad camp. Totally different scenario. It's, it's comparable. You can make a comparison, but it's different. All right. All right. Back to Garcia. People in this, at the crowd there, which was made up of a lot of, you know, teeny bopper girl fans and people who don't know what the hell they're talking about or what they're watching even when it comes to boxing, they were booing some of the lack of action, quote unquote, in this fight. And it went the distance. And if you guys listen to uh, what I talked about, you know, when I previewed this fight last week, I'm not at all surprised it went the distance. You could tell three, four, five rounds in, this thing was going all the way, all 10. Right? And I tweeted about that during the fight. The thing is, all things considered, you know, based on everything I've talked about, even uh, the letdown nature of this fight for, for Garcia and his team, everything, I'm more impressed with these 10 rounds against Jason Velez than every other round of every one of uh, Garcia's previous fights combined because he was actually fighting a live body. Now, Velez was really just trying to survive in there. He wasn't necessarily trying to win after the first few rounds. After he tasted some power and got wobbled, he was really just kind of diving in with not without much of a jab at all and just holding on and trying to smother Garcia's work just to go 10 rounds. But that's the kind of stuff Garcia needs to face so he has some footage to look at and to learn from. And I got to give the kid credit. He did counter well in spots. He did make some adjustments. He, he showed a little bit of craft in this fight. He still backs straight up way too much. He still fights too straight up uh, too much. I, I think he needs to learn angles and spacing a little better. He needs to move his head better. Uh, he needs to get out and circle to the side more instead of backing straight up. There's plenty of things this kid could work on. But all things considered, I thought he handled this moment pretty damn well. He was visibly winded in the later rounds. I, I remember looking and seeing him looking up at the at the, uh, um, the TV or whatever there in the ring. At StubHub, there's only a couple of TVs you can see. They're not all over the arena, but there's only a couple of them you can, you can look up and see. And Garcia knew where they were. He found them, and he was looking up at them visibly, you know, with his mouth open, huffing and puffing. So he was under duress. He was under pressure. And he did get his chin checked a couple times by Velez, who is not a big puncher, but he's a very experienced fighter. Experienced amateur fighter before he went pro. And as a pro, he's fought a lot of guys. So he brought all that experience in there and he gave this kid his toughest test to date. When you look at the punch numbers, though, Garcia threw about 130 more punches, and he landed more than twice the amount Velez did. He landed 152, Velez landed 71. So he still wasn't in there with a killer. He wasn't in there with a guy really trying to win the fight, but he was in there with a guy that forced him to go rounds and learn. This is part of the process, and all in all, you can't give the kid an A, but a solid B+. So, you know, again, the kid's 19. All things considered... Good performance by him. Now in the co-main, Gary Spike O'Sullivan, the Irishman, who came into the ring wearing a sombrero and a kilt. I don't know if I've ever seen that before. Uh, scores a win over Berlin Abreu 
Abreu is really a welterweight who hadn't fought since late 2016. He was docked a point in the third round, I believe it was, for spitting out the mouthpiece. It did not come out uh, for the fourth round. So basically it was a retirement win for Spike O'Sullivan, who had... uh, he would have put up less you know, resistance against Golovkin than Vanez Martirosian did, who I'll talk about in a little bit here. It was better for Spike O'Sullivan to get in three rounds of work against this punching bag than fight Golovkin. So he lives on uh, to fight another day. I don't think he's going to fight Golovkin, but it would not be out of the realm of possibility for him to get a fight against Canelo Alvarez when Canelo comes back September 15th, should he choose to do a tune-up fight before going on to fight Golovkin in a rematch? I don't even know if that fight's going to happen right now. I still think it will. I still tend to believe that September 15th, we're going to see Canelo Golovkin too. But if it doesn't, Spike O'Sullivan might be in the running, man. Call me crazy, but we've seen crazier things, right? This is boxing. Now, because that fight uh, ended so quickly, Sanicia Estrada, female fighter from East L.A., got some TV time. She got in there against the Puerto Rican and uh, pieced her up real good. The Puerto Rican chick that she fought was every bit the punching bag that Berla and Abreu, uh, who was a Puerto Rican as well, was for Spike O'Sullivan. However, the chick fighting Estrada showed a lot more balls and heart than Abreu did. So, on this card, we saw... Two Mexicans, two Mexican-Americans, and one Irish dude just beating up on Puerto Ricans. It was uh, interesting. Uh, Cinco de Mayo. I mean, could you tell who Golden Boy was marketing to here? All right. So Saturday night. Before I get to the other StubHub card, let's go to O2 Arena in London. Tony Bellew improves to 30-2 and two with one draw, 20 KOs, with a fifth-round TKO win over David Hay who is now 28-4 with 26 knockouts in his career. So this obviously was a rematch, right? The first bout was in March. Bellew turns 36 this year, came in three pounds lighter for this fight. Hay, who turns 38 this year himself, he came in four pounds lighter for this fight. So these guys, you know, they took the time off to get in better shape, in better condition, seemingly, than they were for the first fight. But you can see Hay's, uh, the limitation of Hay's movement in this fight and really, if you've watched Hay in recent years, and he's been horribly inactive, uh, you know, not the most Spartan of lifestyles, I understand that the dude always looks like a specimen, but it's because he's a weightlifter. Other than that, though, as far as his cardiovascular agility training, professional athlete type shit, you know, being in shape all year round to go 12 rounds in a championship professional boxing prize fight, No, not the most Spartan of training regimes. And he's just looked slower and sloppier and stiffer in recent years. And in this fight, remember, he had the Achilles injury in the first fight. It showed in this one. All that being said, good performance by Bellew. How in the hell did I even think that David Hay would win this rematch? I just, I thought that the time off would hurt Bellew more. Boy, was I wrong. It actually hurt Haymore. And now that I look back, well, no shit. The guy, you know, Hay needed the activity maybe better than Bellew to come in looking fresh. Either way, Hay gets dropped twice in the third round and once in the fifth round. Both fighters landed exactly 36 jabs, but Bellew landed 34 power punches. Hay landed only six power punches over five rounds. 
That's how shitty Hay looked in this fight. How much does this fight matter, though? Now, here's where I'm going to piss off a lot of my uh, followers from the UK. And you guys know, I, I, I write for a, a British fight mag. I love the British fight scene. I think it is the healthiest and the most passionate in the world right now. But I, can't, I couldn't get excited for this fight. I have only seen a package of highlights that was sent to me. That's it. I haven't watched the entire fight. I couldn't get up for it. Let's review the career of Tony Bellew. And, and I'm not going to go too long into this, okay? But Bellew went pro in 2007 as a light heavyweight, which was probably his best weight. He lost a majority decision to Nathan Cleverly in 2011. I think that was his first loss. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then he had a split decision. Oh, no, I'm sorry. A, a split draw and a unanimous decision win over Isaac Chalemba in 2013, later that year, loses to Adana Stevenson and, and pretty much was dominated and, and knocked out in the sixth round. Completely dominated against Stevenson, who really was the only elite-level fighter that he'd ever fought. And Stevenson at that time really was an elite-level light heavyweight. This isn't Adana Stevenson of the last couple of years. This is Adana's back in 2013. So anyway, after that fight, Bellew moves up to cruiserweight in 2014, gets a revenge split decision win over Cleverly later that same year. His biggest win, uh, seriously, I know this is going to ruffle feathers. All things considered, though, his biggest win might have been, been against BJ Flores in 2016. Think about that for a second. At cruiserweight, he beats BJ Flores for a title, a title Flores should have never had. An absolute travesty, but that, all things considered, probably the best win uh, of Bellew's career. So after 2016, he moves up to heavyweight for a fight against David Hay in 2017, gets to win, and then wins again uh, last Saturday. What's next for him? He's going to fight on. He's talked about maybe fighting Tyson Fury. If that's Tyson Fury's comeback fight, uh, I don't know. That might be interesting, depending on what Fury weighs. Fury doesn't punch hard. Bellew has absolutely no business in the ring with a, a top-level, hard-punching heavyweight. Even a guy like uh, Luis Ortiz or somebody like that. Tony Parker would absolutely, completely outbox him and, and maybe possibly stop him late. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he'd stop him, but it is possible because of his chin. Uh, but guys like, of course, AJ and uh, Wilder would just crush him. There's been talks about Andre Ward, though. Both him and Ward were in the, the latest Rocky movie, Creed, right? Or the first Creed movie, because I think there was a Creed 2, which I haven't seen yet. Or no, they're working on Creed 2. That's right. I'm losing my freaking mind here. The first Creed movie, right? They were both in that. So it would do absolutely nothing here in America. Nobody would give a damn. I mean, it would, it would do decent numbers and decent ratings. You know, Ward does... On regular HBO and everything, Ward would do over a million views at times. But over there in the UK, that is a massive event. And it would do good pay-per-view numbers over there. It would do a good uh, afternoon broadcast, you know, and then later on in the evening, a rebroadcast, you know, numbers here in America on, on HBO. So I, I think that we're probably going to get that next year. It's possible later this year it could happen. But I think it's more probable it happens 
next year. Who knows, man? It really, really a big part of it depends on what happens with you know Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder, that whole thing, which I think won't happen till next year. And then, of course, Canelo Golovkin. Depending on how all that shapes up, don't be surprised if you see Andre Ward punch his passport, go over to the UK and fight Tony Bellew at some catchweight or something like that. It might even, it's it's going to be at heavyweight, but it will be some sort of heavyweight catchweight, which is insane. But this is boxing, and that's probably what's going to happen. Now, real quick, let's talk about the career of David Hay. David Hay, this guy has 32 professional fights. It's 2018. He went pro in 2002. 16 years, 32 pro fights. Do the math. Two fights a year, right? Crazy inactivity. This dude goes pro as a cruiserweight. His best wins were at cruiserweight. He beat Jean-Marc Mormec and Enzo Macarinelli to become the legitimate cruiserweight champion. 2007-2008, uh, he was the champion at cruiserweight. Absolutely was. Then he moves up to heavyweight to go for the money. Here's his heavyweight schedule. TKO 5 win over a shot Monty Barrett. Majority decision win over Nikolai Valuev for the WBA regular title or whatever the hell it was. That WBA title rightfully belonged to Ruslan Shigaev, who had fought and lost to Vladimir Klitschko. So by rights, that fight, Valuev, hey, shouldn't have been for a WBA title. That title should have been owned by Vladimir Klitschko at that point. But I've already talked about that a million times. A TKO 9 win over an ancient John Ruiz. A TKO 3 win over Audley Harrison. Yeah, Audley Harrison. That Audley Harrison. An embarrassing loss to Vladimir Klitschko in 2010, which wasn't remotely competitive outside of two rounds where Hay landed two crazy haymaker wild punches out of left field. Other than that, it was a completely one-sided outclassing by Klitschko who obviously is the best fighter he ever fought, the only truly elite fighter he ever fought. TKO 5 win over Derek Chisora in 2012. And then he returns four years later in 2016, wins against two journeymen without mention, you know, not worth mentioning, and then the Bellew fight. So, so that is the legacy and career of David Hay. For some reason, this guy moves the needle. He is lesser accomplished than Adrian Broner. Adrian Broner looks like an all-time great next to David Hay. And no, I, I'm not stuttering or blinking as I say that. Adrian Broner's resume smokes David Hay. Not even close. Yet David Hay moves the needle every bit as much in the UK that Adrian Broner does here in the United States. Maybe even more so. Now, the di there are differences. I get it. David Hay's a good-looking guy, very well-spoken guy, can promote the hell out of himself, uh, is likable in that sense right? Uh, is charming in that sense. He's on TV all the time over there. And for the right reasons, not for bad reasons like Broner is here. But when you think about it, you know, as much as I ream Adrian Broner for, you know, being probably the weakest four division world titleist ever, that dude is so much more accomplished than David A. I don't understand the fascination some people have with David Hay. He's not Hall of Fame worthy. Yes, he was the Cruiserweight champion. Other than that, just a bunch of smoke and mirrors, man. 
and I hope he retires for good now. I have spent enough damn time talking about that fight. Let's go to StubHub on regular HBO, where in the co-main, history was made. Cecilia Brecu scores a unanimous decision over Callie Reese defending her uh, unified, completely unified welterweight championship. Ten-rounder. This is a championship fight, and it was ten rounds. The rounds are two minutes. The people who in charge of female boxing, which are the same people in charge of male boxing, need to fix this shit. This is the Me Too era, right? Hashtag Me Too. This is, you know, the uh, women want equal pay. Women want equal this and that, right? Earn it. Three-minute rounds. 12-round championship fights. And last but not least, certainly not least, entertain us. The problems with female fighting is beyond the, the you know, they're most of the time, there are some very good, very skilled, fundamentally female fighters and Cecilia Brekus and Callie Reese, I thought fought a good, technical, fundamental fight. I, I you know, I, all things considered. But guys, come on. The female fighters, most of the time, the, the level of, of skill and athleticism between them and the journeyman level Male fighters, I'm talking championship level female fighters compared to journeyman level male fighters. The skill gap is massive. It's like the skill, skill gap between college football and the NFL. I, people in America go ape shit over college football. I don't quite understand it. I understand like the kids have a lot more love for the game and they don't kneel during the national anthem like these spoiled millionaire pricks in the NFL do. Like I get that part of it. But the skills, the difference, I, I watch some you know, college football games and I'm like, this shit, like you watch an NFL game and then you watch college football, oh my God, it's terrible. And that's usually what we see with female fighters. We can start bridging the gap by making three minute rounds and 12 round fights. And some of these female fighters can start bridging the, the entertainment gap by getting knockouts. Now, Brekus came into this fight, now that I got my rant over there and, you know, the three female followers I have just left me. Brekus came into this fight being trained by one of the all-time great female fighters, a female fighter that I enjoyed watching, Lucia Riker. That chick was a badass, man, and she had skills, she had athleticism, and she was a real badass. She was training Brekus for this fight for some reason Friday night, the night before the fight, it might have even been Saturday morning. There was some rift between the two of them. I don't know what was going on. Go ahead and insert your joke because I know what some of you are thinking already. And Riker was out of there. And Brekus brought in Jonathan Banks from Detroit, who is a very, very nice guy. Really a true gentleman, just a nice dude. Not a very good trainer, though. You know, he was working with Klitschko. Vladimir Klitschko after Emmanuel Stewart died for several years, and Klitschko is pretty much running that entire camp. But anyway, another issue with this fight. It didn't start until about 11 p.m. on the East Coast, a little bit after 11 p.m. on the East Coast. So you're opening up with a female fight, female fighters who have never fought ever in America, right? Celia Brekus, let alone on HBO Air, and I get it that that's, you know, this this first live fight uh, for females on HBO, a live broadcast, and that's history in the making. I get all that, but it's starting at 11 p.m. on the East Coast, and the main event, which is what we all want to all get to, I think it was after midnight before that started. 
So that was an issue with this card. Anyway, Brekus was dropped in the seventh round, but it was really more of a flash knockdown. She was legitimately buzzed in the eighth round, though. Reese came into this fight to win. Brekus gets away with the, the unanimous decision victory, and I think she clearly won this fight. I talked about that in the ringside recap. I also talked about um, Katie Taylor, who I think is 9-0 right now, lightweight, two-time Irish Olympian. I'd love to see Katie Taylor move up in weight and fight Cecilia Brekus. That is a female boxing fight with enough skill and star power, at least over in their native countries. That is a female fight that I think can move the needle and get mainstream interest. Now, I misspoke in my ringside recap video. I talked about Katie Taylor's age being in her 20s, being much younger than Brekus. She's not. She's actually turning 32 this year. One of you guys on YouTube corrected me on that, so thank you. But yeah, Katie Taylor, I forgot. She was a longtime amateur, two-time Olympian. So she's actually matured. Turning 32 this year, she's only 5'5". Brekus is 5'7". But Brekus does not have very good power. And she herself is turning 37 this year. So I think that's a doable fight, man. Eddie Hearn promotes Katie Taylor. They need to start banging the drums for that fight because I think that could be like that million-dollar baby type fight. Remember, remember that movie? Which, oddly enough, uh, Lucia Riker was in that movie, right? She, she played uh, the, the antagonist, the, the evil German female fighter that ends up uh, injuring, uh, what's her name? Uh, I can't even think of the chick that played that part right now. Anyway, that could be a real million-dollar baby fight. So I'd like to see Katie Taylor start talking about it and see if they can get interest for that kind of fight because I'd actually be interested in that one. Also on the undercard, welterweight prospect Ryan Martin scores a unanimous decision over Bredis Prescott. Good step-up opponent for him over eight rounds, now 22-0 with 12 knockouts. And then the main event, Gennady Golovkin scores a second-round knockout over Vanas Martirosian. You know, in the first round, it was pretty competitive. And then Vanas Martirosian landed a couple shots, and he showed that he is a skilled fighter. He showed all the things I told you guys about. He's a skilled fighter who knows how to handle himself. He's a, a very, uh, he was an experienced amateur and for the USA Boxing. And then as a pro, as a junior middleweight, has fought some very good names. And he's come up short a couple times in controversial fashion. But even in the fights he's lost, he's never been owned. He's never been dominated, even from a boxing perspective. And he fought Irislandi Lara twice. In the cult of Lara people who thought this guy was the second coming of Pernell Whitaker or something, Vanus hung right there with him. Now, I thought in the rematch, Lara you know, distanced himself a little bit in the rematch. But in their first fight, man, that was neck and neck. So Marta Rosian, and then against what he, look what he did against Demetrius Andrade who's a very slick boxer, who can do it for you know both sides, southpaw and orthodox. So Martirosian can handle himself. Good, quality, experienced professional fighter, and that showed in the first round. However, Golovkin was just warming up, seeing what he had in front of him. Abel Sanchez kind of lit a little fire under his ass in between rounds, between the first and second. Golovkin comes out in the second rounds, and it just starts putting leather on this dude. Hard, hard shots. Martirosian, you could tell, was stunned, visibly stunned. And there, were, there was just a barrage of punches. I can't remember if it was a right or I think it was a left that started everything. It happened so fast, it was hard to tell uh, just watching it there live. Um, but there was one big shot 
that almost briefly paralyzed Mardrosian. You could tell his system was just jolted and he had never been hit like that. And I don't know who they were sparring with, but he should have been sparring against light heavyweights to prepare for Golovkin's power. It seems to me they weren't doing that because the way his body froze up and just neurologically seemed to... The only word I can use literally is, is freeze for a split second. Just show that he had never tasted any kind of punch like that. And then Golovkin follows up, gets him out of there. And immediately, you know, well, there's just been criticism for this fight since it was signed, since it was agreed to, before, during, and after. I saw a bunch of criticism all over social media, which doesn't surprise me. And what was funny is some of the very channels that have spent the last two or three years bashing Team Golovkin were there streaming outside the arena. They had set up booths. There was a booth set up with some of the sponsors and stuff that they had to pay for to do, but they were doing like a live show streaming from right outside the arena. These guys hate Golovkin. They've spent years bashing this dude. They've spent weeks now bashing this fight, yet they were there live streaming, talking about the action. So I, I thought that was very interesting, but I don't understand the criticism of Golovkin. Look, you want to be mad at anybody? Be mad at Canelo. You want to be mad at more people? Be mad at the regulators who run this sport, who have allowed certain things to transpire related to Canelo and his clombuterol scandal and everything else. You want to be mad at anybody on Team Golovkin? Be mad at Tom Loeffler, I guess. But try to at least know the facts first. Some of you just think that, or some of you are questioning why they wanted to keep the May 5th date. If you haven't been paying attention to boxing in America over the last decade or so, May 5th and September 15th, usually right around September 15th, are the two most important dates of the year. And for the biggest star to not fight in or, in or around those dates is very, very bad for business. But more than that, when you're putting together a show at the last minute, and I've talked about this in other videos. I'm not going to go into it too long here. But people talked about Billy Joe Saunders in June. The casino executives in Las Vegas want at least six weeks of full promotion to properly promote an event there. That is part of the deal when they're putting up that money, when you're getting a site fee, when you're getting investors, when you're getting all that millions of dollars, seven figures being propped up up front for a promotion like that. They want enough time to promote that. There are only certain events like, let's say, a, a, a Mayweather-Pacquiao or a Mayweather-McGregor even that could be announced on such short notice because those are major, major events. But believe me, even before, the, before those events were officially announced, well before that, all the, the casino executives and the whales, they were all in on it. And they were the brokers. These people were putting up money for those events well before they were announced. For a Golovkin-Saunders fight, Guys, it just wasn't enough time. And those of you talking about Sergei Derevyanchenko and the IBF situation, that was all pretty much a way to help promote that fighter. 
you know, Lou DiBella's fighter, Derevianchenko, which I think it was very smart for DiBella to do that and try to work their way into some step-aside money. That's the way this business is done and conducted. I get it. But everybody and their mother knows why Golovkin and Loeffler had to scrap something together so last second. And Martirosian being an Armenian, being still rated by the sanctioning organizations as highly as he was, it just made sense. And on top of all that, Golovkin got a million-dollar purse. That's what was reported technically here for the tax man in the United States. He got significantly more from overseas money and sponsorships. But Martirosian got 225 k That's the probably the biggest reason why he got the assignment, more than any of those other things. And I'll tell you this. I was there at StubHub. I saw a lot of Armenian flags. It was Cinco de Mayo. There were plenty of Mexican fans. They were marketing to them. But Loeffler also banked on the Armenians. And there were tons of them there. Because I saw Armenian flags everywhere in the parking lot and in the venue itself that night. All right? That's why this happened. Now, Golovkin ties Bernard Hopkins' streak of 20 straight title defenses. This was the 20th defense of his WBA title. A lot of you have asked about this. You know, I don't make that much of it because these titles now are so easy to get and there's interim titles. And then technically speaking, Golovkin won an interim title then was elevated to full champion due to political issues and things like that. We all know what happened over there in Germany. Felix Sturm was the quote-unquote super champ but shamelessly ducked Golovkin and the promoters over there shamelessly enabled it as well as the WBA. So some people, you know, only rate a certain amount of these WBA defenses. Some people don't rate them because Sturm was the super champ, which is just idiotic because that guy was ducking Golovkin. But then if you look at Bernard Hopkins, and I tweeted about this last week, guys, I think it was the IBF title that he started his streak with. Go back and look at his wins. Look at how he won that fight or how he won the IBF title. It was a vacant title. He won a vacant title, and look at the string of guys that he defended it against and compare that to the guys Golovkin's fought. Now, in the end, Hopkins completely unified the division. He, he you know, got into that tournament, if you will, that middleweight tournament that happened, and he got the big win over uh, Tito Trinidad, which was the finest performance of Hopkins' career. And I would say to this point, Golovkin does not have that signature performance yet, and then after that, he got Oscar De La Hoya. And, you know, yes, Tito was a blown-up welterweight. Oscar technically started his career as a lightweight, but was really a blown-up welterweight himself. So Hopkins still is more accomplished as a middleweight because he did that. Golovkin's on his way. But I'm telling you right now, if Golovkin does eventually get Canelo and gets that career-defining win against him... And then maybe he gets Billy Joe Saunders and completely unifies this thing. And then maybe gets, you know, if if maybe it's Jamal Charlo is, uh, remember Jer- Jermaine Taylor, right? Jermaine Taylor was the guy who eventually befuddled Hopkins. That was the young up-and-coming guy everyone wanted to see him fight. Maybe Golovkin's version of Jermaine Taylor is Jamal Charlo. We'll find out. But give this dude time. Right now, a lot of you are getting so caught up in this 20 defenses thing. I understand it's like a big marketing thing for the promoter and the networks. But honestly, who gives a shit? It's about who you fight. It's about unifying the division, unifying titles, cleaning out the division, and winning 
lineal championships and defending them, being the man of the division, how many times you defend that championship, doing what basically Vladimir Klitschko just did in the heavyweight division, that matters most. And Hopkins was able to accomplish that. Let's see if Golovkin can. Until then, don't get too caught up in all this bullshit. All right, guys, that's it for last week. Let's preview what's coming up this week. This Friday, May 11th, we have a few different cards to talk about. Of course, we have the Thompson Boxing card from Ontario, California, which I will be calling the fights along with Beto Duran. That's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a hell of an experience, and I'll give you guys more information later in the week. But also, PBC on Bounce from Las Vegas. It is a Mayweather Promotions card. Tony Harrison and Ishe Smith facing each other in the headliner. Speaking of Mayweather promotions, man, um, I don't know if you guys follow Javante Davis on Twitter and Instagram and all that, but he's been blasting Floyd. Now, he tweets shit, and then he deletes it. And then he tweets more shit, and he deletes it. But it's obvious who he's talking about. There is a rift between uh, Floyd Mayweather and Javante Davis. Anyway, that has nothing to do with this card. Harrison Smith in the headliner, PBC Unbounce. And then there's a Showbox card from Philadelphia, Headlined by San Francisco-born Devin Haney, who's 19 years old. I believe he turns 20 later this year. He's a 140-pounder, trained and promoted by Floyd Mayweather. He's fighting Mason Menard, his second fight for Menard. It's his second fight back from that KO7 loss to Ray Beltran in 2016. Now, Saturday, May 12th, we got a bunch of action here in the USA. Let's start uh, in upstate New York, the Turning Stone Resort and Casino in Verona, New York. Golden Boy Promotions and Frank Warren working together on a card for HBO. This was originally going to be part of the Canelo Golovkin 2 uh, replay, right? But that's not happening now. Saddam Ali in the headliner is going to defend his WBO junior middleweight title for the first time against Mexican, really Mexican prospect, Jaime Mangia. This was, uh, again, I talked about, uh, well, this was supposed to be Liam Smith originally. Liam Smith was the mandatory for Saddam Ali, but he dropped out of the fight. So now Mungia, who was being bounced around as a possible replacement opponent for Golovkin instead of uh, who eventually became Martirogian, but Mungia would have been nowhere near ready for Golovkin. I believe he's ready for Saddam Ali, but he's making a massive, massive leap in opposition. This is just his second fight outside of Mexico. He's a youngster himself. He's 21 right now, turns 22 later this year. And Ali is experienced, man. He's 26-1, 14 knockouts. Not the most powerful guy in the world, but he does have some, some good quality wins on his resume. And he's 5'9", 73-inch reach. He turns 30 this year. Good experience pro, right? Mugia is 28-0, 24 knockouts, but he's fought absolutely nobody. But you go by the eye test, right? And you go by career trajectory. And you go by activity versus inactivity. All things considered, I just think that we're going to see Ali winning the first half of this fight and then in the middle rounds, we're going to see Mungia learning on the job. And we're going to see him score a possible stoppage in the late rounds or eke out a very close, possibly controversial decision over Ali to take this title. 
He's going to be basically a prospect with a title after this. I think that this fight may resemble Ali's fight with Jesse Vargas to that degree. Although Jesse Vargas really pretty much owned him for that entire fight. I do think Ali will start well and be winning early rounds. I just think Mugia is going to press him and learn on the job a bit. And I think if, if this kid lives up to what the eye test shows, I think he's going to score a minor upset win in this fight and take this title. Also on this card, a really good fight. Do not sleep on this fight, guys. Ray Vargas fighting Azad Havanesian. Vargas 31 and 0, 22 knockouts. Avanesian 14 and 2 with 11 knockouts. Much better than that record shows. Much much better for Vargas, the Mexican. This will be the third defense of his WBC Super Bantamweight title. Vargas turns 28 this year. Five foot seven, 70 inch reach. Avanesian is 30 this year. He's five foot six, 66, 66 inch reach from Armenia, but now lives and trains here in Los Angeles. Earned this fight, earned this opportunity with his big win over Ronnie Rios back in March. So he's active, right? He was just in the ring, not even two full months ago. And now he's going up to challenge Ray Vargas, who is really tall and really long for that super man and weight division. But he's got a real fight on his hands. Alvinesian has been getting better with every fight. He is beaming with confidence right now over his performances over his last couple fights. And I really think he's going to give Vargas a really, really good test. And it's going to show us, it's going to force Vargas to show us if he's just another title holder or if he's a elite level fighter. That's what we're going to see in this fight. And that's why I'm actually really, really interested in that matchup, man. I'm telling you, don't sleep on it. Make sure you tune in for the HBO opener. All right, but the big, big event this weekend is at Madison Square Garden. In the actual garden, right? Not the theater, but the actual MSG, the arena in New York City. Top rank boxing back on ESPN with what is really the best matchup of, of the year on paper. Jorge Linares is defending his lightweight title against Vasil Lomachenko. And for Loma, who just moved up, Again, in weight, this will be his first fight at 135 pounds. And anyone, guys, if you've seen Lomachenko up close, he is a small dude. I'm telling you right now, he could make 126 pounds today if he wanted to. I know he's been fighting at 130. It's not because he can't make 26. It's because he can't find a freaking opponent and he wants to win titles in different divisions. And now he's going up against a true, full-grown lightweight and that's what makes this fight interesting to me beyond everything else i personally believe jorge linares is going to go the distance i think he will look go the distance in this fight because he's just so much naturally bigger and he he does have quickness and athleticism he is a very skilled technical boxer that has improved defensively since some of those early knockout losses in his career and i actually think that he's just got the right mixture of everything, to go the distance with Lomachenko. And I, guys, I'm telling you what's going to happen right now. As soon as this fight goes 12 rounds, and I do believe Vasil Lomachenko will win by decision and claim the lightweight championship, but the Lomachenko haters are going to start bringing up Jorge's KO losses 
earlier in his career. These were years ago, but he had several KO losses. He was stopped. And he had some defensive liabilities back then. And he lost by knockout against arguably the best fighters he has faced in his career. And the Lomachenko haters are going to go back to that and say, see, Antonio DeMarco could knock this guy out, but Lomachenko can't knock him out. And this is the guy you all anoint as the pound for pound best in the world. Lomachenko's overrated, blah, 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 blah. That's the angle they're going to go with. Watch. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. Linares turns 33 this year. He turned pro in 2002 at just 17 years old as a featherweight. And that's another thing these haters are going to bring up. Well, Linares started as a featherweight, just like Lobachenko. So these guys are the same size, blah, 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 because these guys have no idea what the hell they're talking about. They're just going to box rec and looking at stats. They didn't even follow boxing back then. All right. Yes. Linares did star as a featherweight, but as I just mentioned, he went pro at 17 years old. He has been a lightweight since 2010, and when, since he was, his, I think he was 25, yeah. In 2010, he was 25 years old. He was a lightweight. So since this dude's mid-20s, he's been fighting as a lightweight. He is 5'8", has a 69-inch reach. Lomachenko turns 30 this year, doing his first fight at lightweight. What did I just say about Linares? He's been a lightweight since he was 25 years old. Lomachenko turning 30 this year. Oh, no, he's 30 right now. And he's f fighting at lightweight for the first time. That tells you all you need to know right there. He's been a pro since 2013. Five foot seven. That's, that's what they list him at. It's really five foot six, guys. They add an inch. Lomachenko's a little guy. 65-inch reach. And all things considered, because of all these intangibles I'm talking about, Lomachenko is fighting the best opponent of his career. Hands down. This, is, this will be the toughest test of his career. Now, in terms of hand speed, it was Gary Russell. In terms of uh, dirty veteran tactics and tricks, it was Orlando Salido. In terms of overall skill set and, and craft and experience, it was Rigondeaux. But in terms of all the intangibles, the size, all of that, right? The, the, the hand speed, there's just enough hand speed, power, footwork, technical skill, just enough of all of that combined with the size difference. This is the toughest challenge of Lomachenko's career. And I'm going to go, go on record to say this now. Again, I think the fight goes the distance. But if somehow Lomachenko can chop Linares down and stop him inside the distance, that's huge. And that proves beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt that Vasily Lomachenko is the pound-for-pound pound number one fighter in the world. I don't want to hear no damn Gennady Golovkin. I don't want to hear Canelo Alvarez. I don't want to hear Terrence Crawford. If Lomachenko stops Jorge Linares Saturday night, he is undisputed pound-for-pound pound number one in the world. Now, if it goes the distance, if it's close, if it's controversial, that's another discussion. Just him beating Linares, which I believe he will, is a major accomplishment, and he solidifies himself as one of the top two or three fighters in the world. But if he stops him, we're talking some next-level shit. And I know, I know what the haters are going to say. Well, these other guys stopped him, Antonio DeMarco, but guys, styles make fights, totally different time, and, and for all the reasons I just gave you, completely different situation. All right, let me know what you guys think and um, comment below, like, share, subscribe, you know, all that good stuff. 
Next week for TNC, get your questions in for Tiffany Lamb, if you have any. She's going to be on TNC with me. Get your questions in for my brother Anthony, if you have any for him. He's going to be in the episode with me. Let me know what you guys think. I'll see you at the fights.